I have the conviction that, quite apart from any such terrors or imaginings, the religious sentiment tends to develop as we grow older. To develop because, as the passions grow calm, as the fancy and sensibilities are less excited and less excitable, our reason becomes less troubled in its working, less obscured by the images, desires, and distractions in which it is used to being absorbed, whereupon God emerges as from behind a cloud, our soul feels, sees, and turns towards the source of all light. This, of all the dystopian books or stories that I've heard or seen, this one struck me as um, the most plausible because in a lot of ways it's like, you know, you talk to people that want to make the world better on the left or the right, mostly the left. Yeah. Like it seems like their idea of a utopia, they look at a 19th, we're like, that's not what we're trying to build. But like Huxley captured, it seems like, uh, the exact utopia that they would want to build. And it's like, yeah, so this is exactly what you're, you're taking away pain. Everybody's taken care of. Um, everybody has, you know, purpose more than they ever need. You can do whatever you want. And then aspects of it, like um, where they were engineering certain the, the social class yeah, classes the class. was what the Nazis were trying to pull off with eugenics. Yeah, just with less murder. Right, right. Well, they justified, they used, so like the Nazism was using eugenics, which had, I think it had started in the 20s. Someone had coined the term eugenics in like 1880s, but it really started going into practice, like people looking at the viability of it uh, in about the 20s. And I think that might have influenced Hitler and in, in how he viewed Nazis, blacks, uh, yeah. like homosexuals, all those all those types of people. He was like, that can be breeded out, Yeah, as- which has obviously since been debunked, like the the issue of homosexuality or or intelligence or um, emotional control is all far too uh, intricate yeah, of a thing. Yeah, it's much more elusive than we like just, to think it is. Yeah. That we like we there's not just like one gene that, that we, affects. Yeah, you know, it speaks more to the complexity of, of human nature than uh, we can comprehend. Have we started? I already started recording. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah, as soon as like I was like, oh, we're we're already, we're, already talking. we're talking about this. Let's do it. All right. Yeah. So, Nick and Nick, I might just change the show's name to Nick and Nick. Mm-hmm. We're back again. Um, this time we're talking about Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Um, initially, we were going to do like a 1984 versus Brave New World, but we thought there's been some feedback where maybe it's a bit too much. So. We're we're gonna focus on one book, one bourbon, talk about what we can with those. I think this one's gonna be a lot more or can be a lot more emotional than podcasts I've done in the past because the questions that this book brings up in your own head are it's clearly meant the book is meant to elicit some sort of emotional reaction. But um yeah, so we already already kind of started. But I I looked we looked a little bit into Aldous Huxley um, just prior to, just to see what, what his life was all about. And really it was as an author and a philosopher, but he was viewed as one of the, the, um, I guess most notorious thought provoking thinkers of his time. So, um, him and George Orwell, obviously with the 1984 had a little bit different takes on, I guess you could call it a dystopian world because it is 
yeah. quite messed up. Like, obviously, if you ask Controller Mond, who's like one of the characters in the book, um, if you'd asked him, it, it'd be a utopian model that they were following, but obviously from the outside looking in. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, I don't know if it was recorded or not, but the, I think what struck me as uh, very unique to this book, as opposed to like 1984 or other uh, futuristic books that are like classically dystopian, is this actually seems to be perfectly utopian. Like, uh, the, you know, in 1984, they, like, it is the best they can do and it's utopian, but everybody, a lot of the people, and that's the, the main character, wakes up to the fact that it's actually a dystopia. It's not right. Where everybody in this book are like, no, this, we all agree this is a utopia, uh, including the controllers that are like, no, this is the best we can do. And this is, you know, took a lot of effort to get to where we are, and there's no reason to go back. Yeah. And, and towards the end of the book, it, where I got most of my questions that I'm going to, I'm going to pose to Nick, uh, where I got most of the thought provoking ideas was from the final chapter, mm. or maybe the second to last chapter. Yeah. Where, Controller Mond, who's one of the top 10 most powerful yep, people in the world, um, is having this discussion with someone that lived off the grid um, because he was the result of a tryst between like the director and one of the women that were in that. Yeah. And yeah. one of the largest things was that you there was no father and mother unit. It was... You were a collective... Raised by society. You were raised by by a very regimented society where at meter 328 on mm. the assembly line, you're, you're receiving blood surrogate because that'll help you do whatever your function yeah. that you've been preordained will be your function. Yeah. So they have these classes, alpha plus through... Uh, epsilon. Epsilon. Minus, I think. Epsilon, yeah. So it gets down to that level. So they, they split them up from... From the birth, um, yeah. and they, they engineer them differently to reflect that. Yeah, that was, if I could, that was the first thing that struck me. And the, the beginning of the story, they start out um, by walking these new recruits that are just coming into the factory. They're betas or something that are going to be working. And they're walking them through the whole process. And it's just this whole smug process led by the factory's director about like how they've gone about like applying you know assembly line uh, style uh, production to human beings. And there's a part that, and it's very all kind of sterile, and there's a part where they talk about how they are purposefully suffocating embryos, so they're they're purposely retarding human growth, um, which, which is just an atrocious thought. Yeah. Um, but they're doing it on purpose to create this Epsilon class, and you find out later that the Epsilon class is, is illiterate, they can barely speak, and they, they're meant to do menial jobs, and in fact, that they're best served for society and they're best served themselves to only do those medial jobs. And it's actually, uh, the way that Huxley is able to formulate such a horrendous, uh, concept into a kind of a sterile and almost an upbeat, uh, level, like type of writing about that was actually, um, kind of disgustingly remarkable the, the way he could do that. Cause it, it, you kind of fell into lockstep with it. As soon as you started reading, and I think that's what you're trying to drive at, is that you just accepted that this was the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like when you take a step back, you're like, "What the f- did I just read?" Yes. Um, but in the moment, you're like, "Well, could this work? Would would this work?" And mm-hmm. I, one thing that I wanted to bring up was that there are several times throughout the book where, um, and they've kind of developed ways of mitigating these issues but the the characters would start to crack a little mm. bit like they they yeah, would just like show defects in the yeah in the design yep and so they usually solve that with either drugs or like 
purposefully induced rage. They like a monthly. There was like a monthly. Oh, um, yeah. I can't remember what they called it, but essentially they mm-hmm. they flooded the system with orgy porgy type of thing. Yeah, the yeah. Get together, yeah, and yeah. have these. And then yeah. they would just they'd feel fine after like okay yeah. I'm better now yeah. let off some steam. all that all that anger that I had built up inside mm-hmm. that I didn't know about is gone now so it was very regimented down to uh, individual emotions um, and they they kind of regimented through a variety of ways uh, the first one that I wanted to talk about was because we were trying to choose like how are we going to order these and and there's no way really to order them so we're just going with it mm. but the first one is talking about um, monogamy. Um, and Mr. Huxley kind of compares it to water flow, where if you have a lot of different outlets for your passion, your, your emotion, um, the water comes out like, like a shower head, right? Mm-hmm. Where if you only have one outlet for your emotion, it's this highly pressurized jet stream and it, and it causes issues so what exactly it said is mother monogamy ronomance high spurts the fountain fierce and foamy the wild jet the urge has not but a single outlet my love my baby no wonder these poor pre-modern moderns were mad and wicked and miserable Hmm. and i I went in and looked at some like data on monogamy um modern day monogamy is about a thousand years old obviously it's much longer as based off of like Looking at some some bone structure, which I, please explain to me that how the length of one one's middle finger is going to tell people like if they're monogamous or yeah. polygamous, but apparently that's how they did it. Yeah. Um, and somewhere I mean, between, sure, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll leave that up to you guys to determine how that happened. But maybe you can have an anthropologist, archaeologist, yeah. get on here and explain why because that would be fascinating to know. Yeah, so, so apparently four point four to three point five million years ago, it, it changed. Um, and, but really like the, the purely modern, like legalized, um, man and wife version is about a thousand years old. In fact, in my search for my own family tree, um, I started reading about someone back in like 890. I got way back. 890? Well, I I got to like Rolo, Mm -hmm. like people that are in... The Last Kingdom. Is this the or, tree that you found out you're part of uh, the chain, the, the Norman Uhtred, son of Uhtred? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and so you're reading about these people, and uh, one of them, King Richard the mm. First, uh, he had something like 23 wives because mm. infant mortality was so high yeah. that they would just take on as many wives as possible. Anyway, so like, obviously, like truly monogamous relationship is is a recent thing, um, and the human well, really, any creature's ability to adapt to things takes millions of years, not thousands, um, really, truly, within the brain. So, like, with the monogamy, there were two theories. The one was that with a man being so uh, tied to one woman, he's also going to improve and protect his progeny. Um, mm. So it's less likely let infanticide, infanticide, yeah, the murdering of your murdering child. of ones because yeah. it takes longer for children to gestate than mm. most creatures because yeah. of the brain development required. Yep. Um, so it it infanticide frees up the the female for yeah. to, to be mated yeah. with. 
yeah more often or sooner and so that was a big problem and then the other obviously because we've our population has exploded stds have exploded with it mm. and so just the health version or health side of things was yeah. maybe it's because of the threat of stis stds what have you that we've become more truly monogamous mm. and i guess my question to you is like do you see or have you seen and this has nothing to do with your relationship i'm sure it's perfect um but uh do you see like a, a way that this has shown itself in everyday life the the rapid shift from yeah being in groups where sex was not relegated to just you and a partner mm. to now man that you might be asking me a question that's beyond my my wisdom to be able to answer um i'll so i'll attempt I'll attempt it the best way that I know how, which is uh, to try to... I'm just here to put you on the spot. Yeah, man. that's fine. Uh, and try to get me in trouble. <laughs> yep. Uh, with, with so think- like, yeah, it, you know, I, I don't know. I, I've often wondered about monogamy and uh, it's why it's become the way it's become. And I, I start out like thinking about any questions like these where it's like, why is it the way it is? Well, it must have uh, appeared for a reason. Very rarely do things stick around, even if just for a thousand years that serve no function in society. So immediately to say like they're pointless, I, I think is foolish, foolhardy. Uh, from, but, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, from what I understand of evolution, and I'm no, you know, expert on it, mm-hmm. it would seem to me that monogamy would actually work a counter to the propagation of the species because you have a woman who's, you know, like you said, uh, they're growing a baby for nine months and after that it requires a great deal of care where a man can go out and, you know, you learn this in health class and go out and, and spread a seed as much as possible. So it would make sense for the population of the species to do that. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why, yeah, it, it goes hand in hand where once the, the, the population, the repopulation of the earth and the propagation of the species was no longer the, the forefront, but it was more about thriving uh, with the, the living human beings that we had. Maybe it was like, all right, well, how do we, you know, we've got the baseline survival piece down, mm-hmm. you know. We've got food, shelter, security. Maybe we should figure out how to reach, you know, the top of Maslow's hierarchy. Um, So I, I think honestly, I I do think that's probably part of it. I think it's probably a large part of it. Uh, Why monogamy is sticking around now, like when we, when you could choose, and and where it seems like uh, actually to not be monogamous, Mm -hmm. to have multiple partners, seems probably easier than ever. one is probably because of a trajectory like that's just you know become now a norm of our society into reverse directions is hard to do mm-hmm. uh, that's not to say that i don't think there's tremendous utility in monogamy because i would say and obviously i'm biased because i'm uh, i'm married but i'll try to objectively review it as much as possible like, mm-hmm. uh, separate there's yourself <laughs> there's something to be said about uh the union of of two people in a marriage um, that brings out, like it unlocks doors that I don't know could otherwise be unlocked uh, in terms of level of connection with another human being. Uh, the ability, you know, we've talked about raising family here before. Mm-hmm. And if you are uh, not in a monogamous relationship, I, I have to imagine that that would drastically change the ability uh, to be able to raise a family. So like even the, the, yeah. the people that are in um, dedicated polygamous families, so like whatever that show is, or they have oh, like God. five wives There's, or whatever, sister I, wives. That that's it. Brittany loves that show. Um, Me too. It, Different reasons. That, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'll have to tell me about this. Yeah. Um, 
it's, it seems fundamentally different because there's this level of, um, I don't know, uh, confrontation that it seems to arise mm. where it's not just the two people. So there, there's a level of, like I said, relationship and trust that you build and experience that I don't know that can be mimicked outside of a monogamous relationship. And in my opinion, and this is coming from a more of a religious and spiritual worldview, like that two halves of the same coin, that kind of the dichotomy uh, of the male, the masculine, the feminine, the husband, the wife, the different roles. I think that makes us better. And I think that brings us closer to God. Okay. That, that is where I see the value in it. Not to say that there's no value in other ways of living other ways of having relationships but i think that's that's why i believe in, in monogamy at least for us okay i think i think that's there's definitely some veracity and i think the the part that you said that i connected with most is the the connection mm-hmm. the connections that are had between some and, and this isn't even like I'm not even really broaching the the topic of hookup culture or whatever is occurring in today's yeah. dating scene. Mm-hmm. I'm really saying like, God, serial dating, um, yeah. or you know, just being in a string of relationships for I don't know six months to a year to two years. You're you're never going to establish that connection. Like yeah. I don't know anyone, anyone as well as you know Brittany, right? Yeah. Um, what's up, Brittany? But um. <laughs> Like, I don't know anyone that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I could see how that could be rewarding and then yeah. frustrating at times, but definitely re- more rewarding than yeah. frustrating. So and, I get that. And to a certain extent, necessary when it comes to raising young. So yeah. like in this book, they talk about society raising the children mm-hmm. rather than the father and the mother. And we've also speaking, spoken in the past about the you know what a two-parent household brings to the relationship. Yeah. Uh, like rewarding in terms of the relationship level of intimacy mm-hmm. uh, and then also seemingly necessary at least for me it's necessary to have Brittany as a partner yeah uh, to raise the children i can't imagine what it would be like without and the, the the lack of perspective that they would gain because of that yeah things like what happened the last time you and i hung out <laughs> would happen <laughs> i um <laughs> i led to the utter destruction of one of his his oh, sons my goodness we were playing tag and i just juked him out of his boots yeah we'll um, teach him yeah, you better keep to your feet, brother. Just smashed his face yeah, on the yeah. bench. He just oh wrecked his face, and just I, I bled I, all over that yeah. white shirt. And then me and Nick bring home these broken children. Well, the other one is, was completely unaffected by his <laughs> by his brother's pain. Didn't miss a step. Oh my god, he was like, "Why are why are we bringing napkins? Because your brother's bleeding. Why? Like it? You watch this happen, bro. You, yeah, he's funny, funny kids. Yeah. But um, yeah. So without, and then as soon as they go home. You know, mother's there to pro- mm-hmm. pro- provide that yeah. level of care, the emotion, the yeah. softer side of things that yeah. maybe some men can. And well, they saw them, they but like that. he was like, "I want to go see mom." Yeah, I need it's mom. Like once he like calmed down, heart yeah. rate came down. He was like, "I want to go see mom." Yeah, he needed to because that's that's how that's yeah. how it's working with your family. Like mm-hmm. there's a nurturer, and then there's a, a provider or a protector, and mm-hmm. I don't think that necessarily has to be. I don't know if we're going off onto a tangent here. Maybe but a little bit. Yeah, like it doesn't have to be gender mm. uh, assigned, but and it doesn't have to be hard and fast, one or the other. No, but it's the yin and the yang. Where be like a there's little... primarily one that has a little bit of the other, yeah. and then the other covers down. 
Yeah, and, and change they, based on position. And then it's clear, yeah. based off of his reaction to how that all happened, like he understands mm-hmm. how how those roles, how those, how's that, how that has shook out yeah. for you guys, for you and Brittany. So, yeah. but I did mention hookup culture. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you uh, is there any is there anything in the book mm-hmm. that maybe in 1932 when it was published? Yeah was just completely asinine that you see kind of now in today's society. For instance, what I I wanted to bring up and what I started to talk about was the hookup culture, which is largely fueled by social media dating, um, which was kind of, you couldn't have a monogamous relationship in Brave New World if you were part of the society. Yeah, it was was, actually, it was frowned upon and... Not just frowned upon, I think it was illegal. I don't even know if they had, and that was the thing about this story, they don't really have laws, it was just... You do what you're like. You Socially, do you would else be does. outcast, yes. right? If yes. if you were, it was, I mean, even the word "mother" was looked at as a curse word. So, like <laughs> yeah. those types of people would like cringe away from it. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it was mentioned um, at one point. One of the, I would call her a protagonist. Uh, she's she's been dating a man for like four months, mm. and her friend is like, "What's Why going on here? Yeah. Have you dated anyone else in this? Me- like, have yeah. you been with anyone else during mm-hmm. this time? No, just him." And she was getting all defensive because it was. <laughs> yeah. very against their laws. So I guess what I'm saying there is like I, I've started to see, obviously, if you were to compare today to yeah. 1950, 1960, well, maybe more 1950 because 1960s yeah. things got, started getting weird as far as relationships go and mm-hmm. drugs. But um, I've noticed even in my lifetime a noticeable trend in purely monogamous marriage-based relationships to, I, I hate using the word hookup culture, but like, yeah. For lack of a better term, I've seen that happen. So when you say hookup, are you talking about like for purely sexual means or just like I'm going to hang out because it's fun uh, for both. sex and otherwise, it but then both. when it's no longer fun, move yeah. on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think that maybe more so that where it's not just purely, yeah. I mean, that is there, but it there's the, there's the side where it's, you care about the person, but to a degree where it's, you can easily move on. Yeah, Afterwards, your needs, or more easily, I guess, your needs supersede the needs of that person. Yeah, still. Yeah, right. Hmm. Um, do you see anything else like that social norm that's maybe become real, or or something that? Hmm. So another example is like eugenics became a thing shortly after this book was published with hmm. Nazi Germany. I think we started with that. got caught up on talking about that at the very beginning, but. You think of? Can you think of anything else mm, that's become the norm or become become the, something that you could see becoming the norm? Maybe, yeah. like if let's yeah. think. That's a that's a good question. Um, I, looking at things such as uh, hard work, discipline, uh, meaning, struggle, pain—some mm-hmm. things that uh, can often be associated with an unpleasantness as uh, superfluous at best and actually counter to the mean, to the purpose of human existence at, at, at worst. So that okay. like the whole purpose of the society that Hawksley came up with was to eliminate suffering, eliminate pain, starvation, uh, and really meaning, uh, that has, it seems as we become more and more comfortable in our lives seems to be the growing trend of like, well, what can we do to eliminate all of those things. And yeah. I think the beauty of this book is it takes it to the extreme so uh, to such a wonderful extent that 
so the savage, his name is escaping me, but the Johnny. one that li- John that lives on the 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 wild human preservation in New Mexico. That's like you know they worship God and Jesus and they worship the land and they have these you know rituals and they fight and they you know they have mothers and their mothers raise their young. So kind of more uh, uh, of historical type of of human existence are seen as unnecessary and disgusting Mm -hmm. um so as i think probably getting off track a little bit but a progression towards getting rid of the hard things in life uh in favor of whatever's easiest that seems to be a trend uh that we're as we are continuing to master things like technology we have this extra free time and it's like oh we're just gonna throw away those all those other things because we don't need them without a, a real respect for uh, what it is that human beings are are supposed to uh, to provide to the world? So that actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't I didn't know how I was going to segue into this next. But um, yeah, it's it's like we rehearsed this or something, but um, which we actually did not not at all. Um, when you were talking about like how they're systematically removing all sources of struggle. Mm. Um, and this is something that I've kind of rolled around in the back of my head for far longer than this book, but it obviously brought it up to a forefront with, again, that conversation between Controller Mond and uh, John. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, at some point towards the end of the chapter, Controller Mond tells John that he's choosing unhappiness. Mm-hmm. And John says, well, let allow me to choose that. Allow yeah, people to choose. Of choice. And I was wondering, yeah, the freedom of choice. And there's two things. One... Do you see the lack of struggle that's inherent in this book that I believe is what's causing some of that subtle cracking in the under undercurrents of underpinnings of that yeah. society? Do you think that's... I see that happening in real life. Um, I see... Uh, I mentioned in my last podcast, like depression doubled in the span of 12 years from 1992 yeah. to 2004. And then I, I went on to mention like 20% of all Americans at one point or another have been... Um, Diagnosed with depression, which is the mm-hmm. same amount as people that have been diagnosed with an allergy, mm. which is kind of crazy, right? Yeah. And I wonder if, like, the lack of struggle, the lack of unhappy, like, th- where everyone's, like, so going after, like, how to find fulfillment and happiness that they're they're losing sight of, like, the everyday struggle and the beauty of that struggle. Yeah. And I'm wondering, do you think that that is a cause? Do you think it's just, are they unrelated the, the lack of struggle and the, the I, depression? Or? I do, uh, it's a wonderful point, and if I can riff on it, I, I do think they're related, and, and I'll kind of go back to this, is that they try to uh, eliminate struggle. Like, that is the yeah. goal. Um, but, in fact, they're unable to do so, even with all the scientific advancements and the genetic, you know, design of these offspring, playing God, so to speak. And they still can't, which is why they have these uh, you know, rage fests or whatever they're called. And one thing that we haven't mentioned yet, the the society is heavily, heavily sedated. Like mm-hmm. they are used soma, which is a, a drug. Anytime, you know, the higher classes get more, the lower classes get less. Anytime there's a level of discomfort that they face, they're mm-hmm. told to just pop a pill. So there's a recognition from the society and the world controllers that like, hey, we're going to try to do this as best as we can to eliminate the struggle. We're probably not going to work. But that's what we have soma for, and they they do that all the time. And 
so they use drugs and they use sex in order to blunt the negative emotions that they're feeling. So one, even in this utopian society, which again, I think probably more so than any other book or story that I've read, actually achieves what it is that when we think of utopia, probably matches it with, you know, a smattering of like, hey, realize this is what you're signing, you're, on, you're for. signing on for. Yeah. Um, so one, you can't eliminate it. And then two, you know, what do they do? It's not really the struggle that makes... Uh, I guess people have the problems that we have now of society uh, being, you know, severely depressed and to a large extent using drugs in order to blunt those negative emotions. Um, it's the, the inability to deal with those negative emotions. So I, and I think that is very likened to what we see in the story of, you know, they don't teach people in the story to deal with those negative emotions and to work through and process those things yeah. because they just put a drug. It's, it's undesirable. Here's a drug to blunt it. And in today's society where um, struggle is removed in large extent mm-hmm. and almost to a larger extent, it's uh, struggle is looked at as um, unnecessary and that you shouldn't be facing struggle. Well, you should be happy. That, like, only the, the poor have to deal with. Like if you're rich, like that struggle can Which, go away. I mean, realistically, you know, the, we live in the richest time of mankind. The poorest yeah. person in America today is richer then so true the the middle class a hundred years ago so it's everybody at i'd say in america today relatively is is relatively wealthy and therefore should be expected to not have so many struggles and if you do have a struggle well that's i don't know use drugs use alcohol yeah you're (laughs) depressed rather than well no struggle is actually and suffering is actually a natural part of of being a human being this so, is- just to reframe the question, because I'm not sure if it caught it, okay. um, I was basically detailing that I asked you if if religion was removed from history and, and people's memory, if it would come back, you said yes. Mm-hmm. And then I asked you, what do you think keeps driving people back to religion? Yeah. I think um, it's an innate uh, quality of human consciousness. Um, okay. And I think it's there for the reason that, uh, because it calls us to it so in the same way that you know like we talk about evolution earlier you know like there's there's an evolutionary biological drive to drink to eat to reproduce Mm -hmm. to seek shelter you think god's just another one of those evolutionary desires i do and all of those evolutionary and you know one of the arguments when i was actually atheist for a year or two Mm -hmm. uh, of like well it's just uh, you know this whole religion thing seems to be have been corrupted by man, and therefore I'm going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, but it seems, and one of the arguments is, you know, like uh, the idea of God is just is our own way, and you said it here of trying to fabricate um, something to console us for the absolute tragedy of our own mortality, mm-hmm. like the they, the horror, that's I think. the horror of it. Yeah, but my, you know, that that answer didn't. Well, it's true in part that like it's absolutely horrifying, and the idea of a god is a consolation to us. Why does that necessitate the existence of God to not be true? Just because it's a comfort to us? In my mind, I get that because it's I get a that line. Of, is, I get that line of argument, mm-hmm. but I guess to me, does our, our desire to believe in a god, to believe in a higher power, mm-hmm. necessitate that? That God is not real? No. But can you possibly know 
And no. I know this is the faith thing, right? Yeah. This faith versus... Yeah. But like, man, like, you'd think at some point you would have some sort of evidence outside of books that had been written by people that weren't even there, right? Mm. So, like, that's what I, that's my struggle with religion, yeah. is that I'm basing my faith mm. on thousands years old text yeah. that wasn't even written by people that were... I mean, there are some, obviously, examples of there. people being Yeah, the there, gospel. But it's usually second-hand or... Yeah. or or third or tertiary. You know, man, I will make a plug for you. I've been listening to Jordan Peterson's uh, biblical lectures right now. I think okay. I sent you one of them. I would definitely look at them. Yeah. And he makes the art, because I, I thought the same thing. Jordan Peterson is the, he's the author Jordan of... Jordan B. Peterson. Yeah, he's that, the author of uh, 12... 12 Habits for a Healthy Life. Or yeah, like yeah. That. Like yeah. a very popular book. Very yeah. um, intelligent man, a powerful thinker. Mm. He's been on Joe Rogan several times, yeah. written a multitude of he's books. He's one of the great intellects of our time. I yeah. Think. Uh, yep. very uh, polarizing figure when it comes to some issues. Uh, but that's that's what's... Am- this is going to be a very quick aside yes, because I, I really want to say it. I respect that about Jordan Peterson, Jordan B. Peterson, because everyone just wants to fall in line mm-hmm. right now and they just don't want to like stir people up, rock mm-hmm. the boat. And, and people are getting canceled left and right, man. Um the whole, the whole. I mean, every probably every podcast of any s- single man mm-hmm. around my age has probably mentioned him at least once. But Joe Rogan's podcast, I don't even watch the podcast, man. Mm-hmm. But I respect what he's doing. I, I think that he's a he's out there doing yeah. something, he's and seek- he's fiercely himself. He's seeking truth unapologetically, unapologetically. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Jordan Petersons of the world who unapologetically have their own beliefs. Mm-hmm. Which they arrive to after careful consideration. They don't take these things yeah. haphazardly. It's not just something that he's like, well, this this falls in, in line with my yeah. party leanings. Right. It's And I respect that about him. And, man, it's hard to be that type of person yeah. right now. It, it's hard. Mm-hmm. You have to, like... Which maybe makes it all effort. the more necessary. Right. Yeah. So he, he says in one of them, you know, like, we as a society, and this kind of goes along with the ego like centrism of like the atheist line of thinking is that the scientific method is the only way to prove truth when really mm. truth is so much broader than we can refine in one, you know, way of finding it. And that the stories of the Bible, and this is the whole reason he did the biblical series was like, yeah, you know, there's so many things that could have been propagated for thousands of years through humankind. Like we only by, you know, by virtue of the idea of evolution, like, which we kind of accept as a scientific truth now, a law essentially, is that like only the strong ideas and people survive. Well, it's obviously survived, so therefore it must be strong. If it's strong, therefore it must hold some very insightful information. There might be some truth to it. Yeah, there might be some truth to it. And and the truth is not to be looked at like, did Noah live exactly this amount of years? Was there an exact flood? Did he exactly have? But there's a truth that's broader than that context. And there's a... There's a there's a spiritual element to life that I think, and this is what kind of I guess tying it back to the book, is that you know they've reduced everything down to as much as possible to a binary measure of ones and zeros and human beings and behavior. Yeah. When in reality, um, and this is what the, the 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 main character of the book, John the Savage, is is fighting against, is that uh, human beings cannot be uh, reduced down to. Um, genetic predeterminism like it is up to them to choose 
their future, to choose their actions, even if they might not be in their best long-term interest. So you think you think God gave us the ability to self-determine? Yes. Like fully? Yes. You don't think anything was destined well, to Well, let me put it this way. Not fully, because I'll never be eight feet tall and I'm not going to be able to dunk a basketball. Beyond like the genetic, or the, yeah. I guess biological markers that are preventing you from being six foot eight. Right? Yes, or being, you know, uh, a Menza, uh, you know, beautiful mind type yeah. of character. Yeah, so there are limitations on that. And then obviously the era with which you're born in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, imagine if great figures like Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo or some of the great scientific thinkers of the past, maybe people we never had heard access about, to the, had access to the technology that we know now. Like, so you're in in a certain way you're bracketed, but yeah. the degree to which we can move within that bracketed time and space, I think, is much larger than we as a as as individuals or as a society give ourselves credit for. So you don't think that we're just like blown around at the whims of some ultimate creator do you you don't think that there's any any chance that our powers of observation Mm -hmm. are not strong enough to recognize that there's something happening that creates some sort of Mm. like you were meant to be in this position at this time oh a level of of fate now i think i've said this in the past like i do think there's an intent and a design for our lives that if we were to fulfill it and to walk on that narrow line would uh, be in some sense an optimization of our life. Mm -hmm. But I do think we have the desire or not the desire, excuse me, the ability to deviate from that line. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, (laughs) that makes me think I'm going to, as you're thinking about this, I'm going to, I'm going to flood you with more questions. Okay. Do you think that when people find their passion, mm. like something that they're truly in love with doing, yeah, like the the people that go to work every day and it's not work for them, mm-hmm. do you think that that is a like a really strong sign at the very least that they're on the right that right path, or do you think that that's just like yeah, an abstract? Yeah. Do we have another way, a better way to determine if we're doing the right thing? Maybe outcome. You don't know the outcome at the prime, time. Right. Like you, no one can foresee the future. Yeah. And even then, what outcome? The outcome right. in 10 years, 20 years? Like there's the, you know, the ripples of our actions on time and space yeah. uh, will probably outlast our mortal being on this planet. Yeah. Therefore, for us to determine the outcome is a little bit... Um, I think I know what you're trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's unreasonable to think yeah. that. You know, the whole the whole... Uh, one of the issues with the uh, climate change is not that you know what we're we can make a difference for positive or negative. It's that the severity to which we make that difference and how long those things will happen is just very very hard. It seems to me to to pin down. Well, there's just so many variables. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I get I get what you're saying, and I I wonder. I I think that there's a little it's a it's a fair mix between mm-hmm. I think you're given left and right limits mm-hmm. um not to use that terrible phrase but you're you're given mm-hmm. you're given a, an avenue that yeah. you can operate in mm-hmm. um and it's I think that it, it's fairly broad yeah now I get what you're saying like obviously like your your genetic predisposition to be five foot ten mm-hmm. is, is probably something that you can't overcome yeah. maybe with how you ate as a child, which I still blame my parents for my my 
my uh, probably between five and ten years old, I was eating a lot of mac and cheese and beanie weenies. So I'm not sure if I really reached my full potential there. Yeah, it's um, a lot better than eating nothing and dying. Yeah. Oh, mom would love you for that. Um, no, but I think that there's like outside of like the extremes, I think you're given a pretty wide berth, man. And especially in this country, in this day and age. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, and people kind of don't, um, they don't give the U S the credit anymore because I think that obviously there are definitely things to improve. And I actually enjoy the fact that people are no longer there's it's it's gotten to the point where people no longer have any fear of voicing their opinions. And it's kind of become this very all inclusive, like, mm-hmm. let's figure this out together, at least for the in the large part. But I think people have lost sight of how bad it could be. Yeah, Like you're in, you know, Central Asia in 1300 like your quality of life yeah is far worse yeah than it could be right now for for women for yeah. homosexuals for any any name your person man for little children yeah happen you know for oh. like yeah the the life expectancy yeah come on so i think i think what's happening is there's this like there's this effect that's created by the media that shows that it, things are far worse than they actually are, and then there's the loud mi- minority, um, all about everyone being treated equally. That wasn't always the case. Um, so I think that people don't give the U.S. the credit, and honestly, that's the beauty of the U.S. I think is that it can withstand a verbal beatdown. Yeah, um, it was in, in fact intended for it. Yeah. Yes, yes, it was by design. Yeah, um, a little bit of an aside there, but I was just thinking about that um, based off the the conversation. But I think to bring it back to the book, this, I mean, if you've made it the whole way through the podcast and you've listened to some of the questions I've asked Nick, like there are some heavy questions. Mm. And it's not like I was like, went into this book thinking I'm going to find a way to try to find some really tough questions for Nick to answer. It's just, these are questions that I recall thinking as I was reading. Yeah. Um, and I think that's by design obviously as well. I think Aldous Huxley did a great job of painting a picture that was achievable. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that he did a good job of showing the atrocities of something like that. Mm hmm without making it sound heinous um which is real absolutely like the uh the more i think about it the the more i have respect for this thank you as a just a piece of art because you have books like 1984 that are dystopian future and obvious to the reader as they're reading it that they're dystopian um but as you read this you're like well would that be so bad and i think there's something that sits in your gut that's unsettled as you read this it says like well, that doesn't seem so bad, but then you have to really think. You're like, about why it. is it? Why is it? Because so you bad? know it's not bad, or you you know it's not good. Excuse yes. me. But what is? But you how? have to question and discuss, which is what a, a wonderful piece of writing to force you to to face these hard questions. And you, I mean, you have great questions here that are raised by a book, and that's just testament to the book as as well as you. Of well, these are the these are the questions and the hard questions that people should answer uh, before they happen before we make serious mistakes 
and how we progress as a society into something that we think we want, but may not actually be what we are intended for. And I think therein lies another key point in that, and obviously I'm going to be a a huge proponent for this because it's kind of what I based this whole podcast off of, um, aside from bourbon, was um, the power of reading and, and the tools that it can provide. Yeah. And I think that's... I mean, obviously, reading has become far less exciting um, or, or prominent, I guess, is a better word. Yeah. Since the advent of, you know, TV, radio, yeah. all these other... And just mass literacy. Once everybody knows how to do something, it's not so cool anymore. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Because, like, if, if everyone has that access... I, I get that. No, I get that. But it's also... It's harder to... This is an active act of improving yourself when you're reading something. Yeah. When you're watching TV, that is a very passive way of receiving information. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way it's, I, I liken it in a, some, in some sense, it's like taking the soma, it's taking the drug. Mm-hmm. Something yeah. difficult's coming up. Like I'm just going to blunt my emotional and mental so reactions that procrastination. Right now, where when I'm actively seeking something and learning something and asking questions like this is very uncomfortable. You, you know what? Nobody likes to do that, but you have to think like the feeling I talked about, you know, reading this book, like, yeah. you have to evaluate those things. You're like, damn, am I, have I been right in my, the preconceived notions that I brought to this book? Right. Like and most I, of the time, probably not. Right. Which is the scary and, part. And I wonder if like most of the time you change your ideology. Mm. That's, that's another thing is like, are you, you got to go into these things because I'm, I'm reading banned books and they've been banned by different people for different reasons. Yeah. But it's clearly insightful. Mm. At some point, someone was insightful in both ways. Like it provides insight and it also incites a little bit of. Struggle, or or angst within the yeah. person reading, and so obviously none of these books are are meant to be leisure reads. Right, um, I do enjoy a leisure read, but like this is something that like I'm actively writing and highlighting and and starting like I'll take a step like I'll read something I'll read a passage, especially that one chapter between Controller Mond and John, yeah. where I just like I would slap the book shut and I'd be like, all right, what do I think about this? Mm. Yeah, and um, I think that's the power of books. And I, so yeah, read more books, guys, please. Um, it's it's a ben, powerful tool. Ben Franklin, his and his autobiography really changed kind of my my perception of what reading was like. It's like, no, reading is good. It gives you education. Everything. It's like Ben Franklin was an advocate of reading. He said because it, it will open doors to different people and different ideas that you never thought existed. And he talked about how he could go into different rooms as you know he grew up. Uh, I think relatively poor work, working in some type of shop. I can't remember what. I and think it, I remember that he was like a tanner or something. Something, yeah. uh, something not of the upper it crust. A, it was class. a menial, yeah. But his, then because of reading and his, it was he was very honored to be able to learn how to read and write. Uh, because of that, when he started going into adult parties and things like that, he was able to have these conversations and talk. Uh, intelligently about things and that obviously we know the trajectory uh, yeah. you know where benjamin franklin ended up as one of the founding fathers yeah like it was and he credited that through reading yeah read more books guys get in on this shit oh actually um <laughs> so one thing that i want i want to do better at is alerting the people that do watch this um with apt time to react 
is what I'm going to do next. Um, what book I'm going to read next. So that, oh, so they can read with yeah, you? If they want to, if that they choose sense, to. Yeah. So one thing that Nick and I have both read, and that we do intend on probably creating a podcast for within the next month, I would say. Okay. I think that's a reasonable... I didn't know this. I didn't sign on to this until just uh, now, he's, but that's He's okay. with it, though. He's yeah. with it, though. Look. Okay. He's down. <laughs> uh, is 1984 by George Orwell. So, obviously, we got to nail down which weekend works best because we're about to both get real busy with life changes. Life, yeah. But, um, and this is, like, probably... This next one will probably be the last one that features Nick for a while because he's he's heading off to, to different parts. Yeah. Um, so 1984 by George Orwell. I'm giving you a month at least advance warning of, of the next book him and I are going to go over. Um, shit, maybe I, I, before we do it, I might start asking questions of people that have read it and seen, seen what they think about it, what, yeah. they, what questions came to their mind and see if we can field them. Look, man, I'm not perfect. Me and Nick had some drinks while we were doing the podcast, which was, I think, only the second time I've ever done that during the podcast, and it definitely had an effect. We totally forgot to rate both the book, or at least enumerate both the book and the bourbon. Rowan's Creek is... A bourbon that I've tried before, but I knew that I would like it, and I had picked it because I knew Nick's still new to the bourbon game, um, and I'm, I'm trying to rope him in. I'm trying to bring him into the fold here, so I picked a good one. As far as the book goes, like we mentioned in our conversation, this was a book that forces you to face some pretty tough questions that it's on you to figure out if this is... What the what the reality, where you stand on some of these issues is. So, I enjoyed that part of the book very much. I'm rating it up in the top five of the books that I've read. Um, I'm going to give it a 4.4, which is just below Early Riser and one other book, but that places it at, places it at fourth out of the, I guess, now 19 or 20 books. So, it's in the, the top... 20% of books that I've I've read, um, probably all time, I would say that, yeah. And as for the, the bourbon, Rowan's Creek, mm, solid, solid bourbon. I do seek it out, obviously. I think that alone tells you something about it. I, I saw the label, the name, and I need to choose that one for mine and Nick's podcast. We went on to drink more of it after the podcast ended, so I'm going to give that a 4.1 out of 5, which puts that in like the top 6 or so of the 21 bourbons. So, both solid reviews for those two items. Uh, look forward to hearing from you guys on, on this podcast. Also, don't forget... 1984 by George Orwell in about a month. And I think uh, I'm going to do The Invisible Man within the next two weeks. So look for those two podcasts to come out. Join me if you can in reading them. Let me know what you guys think about them. And if you can, provide some questions before those are to come out in those two weeks. And then 
a month and, and let me know what those questions are and I can start incorporating those into my podcast. But as always, love you guys. Damn the man that can't do it. Thank you.